Welcome to a special summer edition of the Bighorn Podcast. Each year, we celebrate members of our community who work tirelessly behind the scenes to provide us with the lifestyle that we enjoy. Along with being grateful for all of the services that are provided to us, we sincerely believe that we are all part of a family here at Bighorn that the culture here is one in which we will continue to strive to maintain. My name is Marty Lockman, and today's episode is brought to you with the support of Leeds & Sun Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 75 years, who has one-of-a-kind items that sets the standard within the Coachella Valley. Please visit them at their El Paseo store and at the Jewel Box store in the Pro Shop. Bighorn Properties, whose staff, with over 30 years of experience, is representing buyers and sellers in exclusively handling only Bighorn. They know the culture and history of Bighorn better than anyone else, because that's all they do. Back Nine Greens, who continues to provide works of art for you to both improve your golf game and your home. Back Nine Greens does projects worldwide, but are based right here as a member of the Bighorn community. Corliss Estate Wine, who create award-winning wines with their old world techniques and new world fruits, which are on display for your pleasure at the poorhouse and the steakhouse at Bighorn. Try a glass or a bottle this evening. This podcast has the same twists and turns that have been the theme of all of our podcasts. And today's guest is no exception. Our guest is Ruin Krugel, Director of Outlets and Sommelier at Bighorn. His story is unique, interesting, and accomplished. I believe his story will give you some great insights into the individual, both personally and professionally which has made him a great addition to our family here at Bighorn. But let's start the story where it all began, in Kempton Park, just outside of Johannesburg, South Africa. Ruan, please take us on your journey. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Marty. It's an absolute honor and privilege to be a part of this podcast, looking at some of the storied people that have been here before me. Kempton Park, as you mentioned, its claim to fame is actually that it is home to Johannesburg International Airport. So when people say, what's it close to? That's, you know, the closest thing is if when you visit South Africa, that's where you're flying into, even though it's called Kempton Park. I went to a very small school. We had about 300 individuals. And what was kind of unique there is the fact that classes were taught in both Afrikaans and English. And while I didn't realize the impact of it at the time, I actually went to school with both white and black children, which was kind of unique because where I grew up, you wouldn't really see anybody else other than people that looked like yourself. And then when I went to go to a school environment, I'd have black friends. You didn't realize this at the time. You're just a kid. You're doing child things. And and there you go. You know, my mom worked for a chemical uh, company at the time. She worked pretty close to where I went to school and she would drop me off in the mornings. And my dad worked uh, in education. He was a, a primary school teacher where he actually ended up retiring before consulting for the government in the transition government after apartheid ended. So that was right around 1994. But, you know, 91, 92, 93, Prior to the actual legislation changing, there was already changes kind of happening. It was weird to be peripherally aware of that, 
looking back now, it was kind of cool. I remember there was also a sense of panic heading into 94 before the election. I remember walking into grocery stores and all the non-perishable goods were gone because people thought this was going to be the end of the world. There was a, a rush on dried foods, canned foods. I remember my parents kind of sheltering me and also kind of making fun of the, the craziness because they were part of embracing the change versus people that were kind of on the other side of the spectrum. They were like, this is the end. We've seen this story before play out in Africa. You know, this is, there's going to be a civil war. There, there was some significant fear mongering. There were times where things were actually scary. Like there were nights, the area where I grew up, Apartheid South Africa was kind of unique because there, there was a geography of apartheid. So what happened was, because it was segregated, black South Africans weren't allowed to live in white urban areas. They actually were issued a pass so that you could be checked in and out. And so you had these very wealthy neighborhoods, like the one where I lived. And then you had all of these associated black neighborhoods, which were always separated by a physical landmark. So whether it was like the wrong side of the tracks, because literally there would be a rail line, and then there'd be what would be now considered a shanty town. Where I lived was, uh, there was a main street called Moifonteinwach. <laughs> and then across from that, there was kind of a ravine. And then on the other side of that is what is still today a very large informal settlement called Tembisa. You know, and there were nights where you could hear rioting and gunshots and stuff kind of towards the end of, you know, the transition period. And, you know, there were a couple of times where my parents actually woke us up because they were like, hey, there might be a chance that we might actually kind of have to leave because you could, it, it sounded like people were marching up the street because it was a kind of a main thoroughfare, you know, and it's also kind of humbling because there's always this juxtaposition between wealth and privilege and not. I mean, you would, I'd drive to school in the morning and we would live in what would here look like a normal suburban neighborhood. And right across the way, you have people living in galvanized metal shanties uh, without power and electricity. I think that definitely changed my perspective and, and really gives me a grounding in, you know, being extremely thankful for what you have. But it also teaches you that there's a fragility we talked a little bit about this briefly earlier about information and that sort of thing, but you don't realize how fragile freedom is and what a privilege it is to be a part of a society that we live in and get to participate in here. You know, as somebody that came to the United States and became a citizen, I very much buy into that. I almost sometimes feel like people don't realize how good you have it here, but not just that, with that comes a responsibility. You have to protect that and you have to invest in keeping that going because it's not just given it's, it's fragile it's safe to say i'm sure that living through that experience even at a young age mm -hmm. changed your perspective on life for the rest of time oh absolutely i think it changes the way you form relationships and it also allows you to think about things in perspectives of a more global perspective you realize that the decisions that you make both personally and at a, a bigger level and, you know, the things you buy into have an impact on broader society. And it also makes me take a long view. I think I've always kind of been a little bit more. It's a, it's a tough thing to say now because I don't want to make this a political statement, but I think I've always been more conscious of what are the decisions I'm making impacting, you know, globally, environmentally, like there are repercussions for the things we do in our day to day life. But as a child, did you feel tenseness that was around? And did people take sides, as they often do even in today's politics and today's social 
ramifications. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, in our broader community, you know, there were times where I could feel like we were outsiders because of the fact that I was going to a, a different school than where I, people were growing up. And the decision that my dad made having, you know, hired the first black teacher ever in our district, uh, you know, people would, there were some words that were said sometimes that were not, you know, necessarily great. But at the same time, when you're a kid, you're just going to do what kids do. You don't really, you know, it's just like, oh, this guy wants to play soccer or throw a ball or whatever. I'm like, oh, that's great. Kind of look at background class, whatever the case may be. So, And kids were very open to friendships, especially, as you said, if somebody can play on a team and he can contribute or she can contribute, that's great. We don't care who they are. Oh, absolutely. And you become almost, and it's an overuse, but you become colorblind. Mm-hmm. When you're young, and we only with our biases that that's something that with the input that we get mm-hmm. changes us to some degree. You lived through something that had worldwide impact. It's just interesting, and and again, as I said, it colors where you are today. Tell us more about what happened in those early years and schooling and and your involvement in athletics and other things. You know, I was incredibly fortunate in the way the school system was structured. There's an expectation that you have to be part of at least one academic portion or extracurricular activity and one sport and one cultural activity. So in addition to your schoolwork, it wasn't uncommon for me to go to school at eight o'clock in the morning and be there till five, six, seven o'clock at night, whether that was doing speech guild or debate. Um, I sang in multiple choirs um, and then I was on the track team played cricket and rugby growing up. And then later on, you know, obviously I, I joined the shooting team, which was, I, I tell people that here and they, they look at me like, are you crazy? We had a shooting range on the school property. We would go to what was then the shop class and check out our rifles, walk across the school property, and then you would shoot 50, 60 rounds, you know, just practice. And I mean, on the other side of the shooting range, there was a, a cricket pitch and the rugby field. I mean, here people, you'd lose your mind. You know, then you would check in your ammunition afterwards, so obviously everything's safe, and then load up your, your rifle and then go back to the shop class, strip it down, clean it, and then check it back in, you know, and you would log it in and out with the serial number, which was on the bolt. They were all bolt action rifles. Just thinking back now, I'm just so fortunate in all of the things I could be a part of. I was always good enough to be on teams, but I was never exceptional as an athlete. But I think I really kind of found my own on the cultural side and then also in music. You know, I, I might be a little bit of an old soul. I, I really fell in love with classical music, especially both opera and then chorale. Ended up singing in the Johannesburg Bach Choir, which was, there was a radio personality, Colin York, who uh, was a broadcaster on Classic FM. And I was doing some research and I loved all of his selections. And it turned out he was the conductor for the Johannesburg Bach Choir. So I looked him up and I ended up going to watch their performance. They, they ended up practicing in a church hall, which had incredible acoustics uh, out in Randburg. And I sat uh, and just listened to them sing. He noticed me and then afterwards was like, hey, do you want to audition for the choir? I'm like, no way. And I mean, I'd, I'd been singing at the high school choir and we were quite good. We went to nationals a couple of times and ended up winning the national championship one year while I was there. I was nowhere near in the league as I saw it, these people. I ended up auditioning. I was so disappointed afterwards. And I kind of remembered walking out to the parking lot. I was just like, what have I done? This was the dumbest idea I've ever had. He came out to the parking lot to come find me. He was like, 
so why are you out here? I'm like, well, you know, that didn't go well. He's like, are you kidding me? No, we'd, we'd love to have you. And so as a 16-year-old, I started singing with them. And I think the, the youngest other person in the choir was maybe 45 or 50. It was mostly, you know, people that have classical music demographic. And then also people that had either been part of a program at some point, a lot of retirees, you know, just people that wanted to be part of music still. That was kind of the first hint that maybe I was a little bit of a, an a old soul. And we performed the first year we did Foray's Requiem. We would a lot of times do either Mozart in conjunction with Bach and also Foray, because both of those composers were instrumental in bringing Bach's music to light. And so as an homage to that, you know, you would kind of perform them in conjunction. So we do like Bach's third cantata, Christlagen Torres Banden, a lot of fun times. And we performed at universities. And You've always been from just looking at things that you've accomplished, and we'll get into those. But you've always been proactive about creating opportunities. You haven't sat back and waited for someone to come, opportunity knocks, and you open up the door. You've you've been very proactive. Is mm -hmm. that Where does that attitude, where does that come from? I think it's a combination of both of my parents, especially my mom. She was always very entrepreneurial and very adventurous. We used to do a lot of vacations going into Africa at a time when it really wasn't safe, especially for white South Africans, to be traveling to places that had just recently become independent, like Zimbabwe. We went up to the Caprivi Strip area and the Okavango Delta in Namibia and Botswana, right where there was still pretty much a civil war going on. I actually got to meet Robert Mugabe at the Victoria Waterfall, and he gave me a tour of his limo. I mean, this was so, like, this is the stuff that you, I mean, he showed me all of the security features and back in the day before this was common, like bulletproof windshields and run flat tires. At the time, you're a kid. Once again, you don't really understand. And now you look back and you're like, are you kidding? I basically met the Idi Amin of my time. I was maybe like eight or nine years old. We did what other people at the time would consider to be absolutely crazy things. Once again, there were times where you would realize that, A, you're in an area where you're maybe the only white face. And there were some uncomfortable situations where you're in the middle of a marketplace or something. We got pulled over a lot, especially in places like Mozambique. It was, it was very what corrupt. And here? yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you would, I, I remember once again, just incredibly impactful. You would drive by these roads and stuff, and there'd be a burnt out tank on the side of the road, and all of these buildings pockmarked with bullet holes because it was just post Civil War. What should be a great indication of the, the country is when you drive over the Tet River, so over the Tet Bridge, no problem, and we cut through Mozambique on our way to Malawi. You go over the Tet Bridge. Coming back, when you leave Mozambique, they charge you a toll to leave the country. So not to come in, but to leave. So that should give you some perspective of what kind of uh, government you're dealing with. And then you'd get pulled over for wearing sunglasses. And they'd be like, oh, it, it impairs your vision. But as you're leaving, you see the officer put the sunglasses on and, and drive away. Like stuff like that. Where it's, it's kind of funny, but it's also scary because you have no authority and there's really no recourse. I mean, they could do whatever they want. What a wonderful attitude your parents taught you to be open to these experiences. And I'm sure that they were careful and I'm sure that they were worried about safety at times, but they allowed you to have these experiences. That's a real gift. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it translated into various opportunities, as you said. So my parents eventually got divorced 
I think maybe I was a little bit of an odd child and I think it's always a weird transition where you, when your parents are separating. And so my mom would take me to the Transvaal Snake Park, which doesn't exist anymore. They would do this show where you'd have an animal handler and he would do quizzes and ask questions. And at one point he got so tired of me answering all of the questions that eventually they were like, hey, do you want to come work here? As a teenager, I started volunteering at the reptile park. And so I got to clean cages and do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. But it also evolved into being able to go and do field trips with them and worked on redistribution projects, captured animals for you know various studies and in collaboration with various institutions, which was also just some of the most fun I've ever had. But you also mentioned that within your school years, mm -hmm. your words, you were a bit of a problem child mostly based on boredom. Yes. Tell me about that. <laughs> I think, you know, the devil finds uh, use for idle hands, as it were. Academically, I just don't feel like I was very stimulated. I mean, I was a voracious reader. I think I've always enjoyed kind of getting lost in fiction and then also in history. I would read a lot of books, especially Second World War, African history also. I think what was happening in the classroom was kind of sedentary. I was like, well, this is not moving fast enough for me. And once I was in high school, I was lucky enough to be part of a pilot program through the Poch University, Poch of Strum, sorry, we just called it Poch. And it was kind of a tourism development curriculum. And so I think here the equivalent would be doing like AP classes. And so once I started doing that, I was like, wow, this is stimulating and interesting and at, at a different level, I can kind of engage. But as far as like the actual class setting just was never that interesting to me. Through even these early years and continuing, it seems you like to be challenged mm -hmm. and you always want new opportunities. Your intellectual curiosity drives you to a great degree. Yep. And maybe it also gets me in trouble sometimes. I have a tendency to try to do too much or too many things at the same time. When I was at university, I was politically active. I was part of the independent Democrats at the time. There was a, a movement going on where I think in a overcorrection post-apartheid, there was a big push for students to say that. So the university I went to was Ransa Afrikaanse Universiteit, the Rand Afrikaanse University, which is now University of Johannesburg. But at the time, it was very much an apartheid institution. In fact, it was built, the skeleton of the university was built also so that it could be used as a military or a hospital complex in the event of civil unrest or a war breaking out. It's not the most romantic place. It's this very like chunky cement construction, very militaristic. It was also an Afrikaans university and the curriculum also was very conservative. And the founders were some of the people that also were the fathers of apartheid. In fact, my mom was actually expelled from university for anti-apartheid anti -apartheid, uh, activism. When I was there, there was a big push and a lot of protesting about making English the only language or only teaching medium at the school because classes were being offered in both Afrikaans and English at the time. And even though Afrikaans is my first language, I went to school in English because all of the textbooks are available in English and the resources. It's just easier when you're writing documents and stuff. Spell check doesn't quite work with Afrikaans. But at the same time, I had this inherent sense of this is not right. Like you can't just replace history and replace part of a heritage because you don't agree with it and because it represents something that ideologically is not something that we're comfortable with. There has to be a better way to work through this. At the time, Afrikaans was still the most spoken language in South Africa, whether that was because all students were mandated to learn Afrikaans at school, but it was still also the business language. 
I joined the Independent Democrats and I was actually, I, I wrote the, the campus's constitution over there. But at the same time, I was working for the university as a tutor. And I also worked as a research assistant to actually write the history of the University of Johannesburg. But I think a, a lot of that was because I was curious. And it's not like we were incredibly well off. I didn't take these jobs because I needed the money. I took that because it gave me access. Like I could get access to the reserve area of the library because I worked for the university and it, it opened doors for me. So it was always like, what can I do to add value to wherever I'm part of? But that also allows me access and opportunity elsewhere. But at the same time, you're also stretched really thin because you've got all these things going on. Well, in differing point of views, you can have more than one point of view about a situation. We too often get so biased about one view or another that we don't listen, are open to the fact that there are many sides. Mm -hmm. It's much more complex than just one side or the other. Absolutely. Okay, now you're in school. You're now more challenged because you're into some of the advanced programs. What are you thinking now about what the future looks like for you at even a high school age? At the time, I uh, really thought I was going to go into environmental management or environmental policy. I think, as I mentioned earlier, the environment's always been very important to me. And then growing up, going into Africa, I got to experience some incredible wilderness and some really untouched scenery. I think that that's important. We need to protect that. But then also seeing disparity economically, I realized that South Africa has incredible resources. But if you foster those in a way, you can actually like do some real good. And that's what I ended up studying development studies. I think that was kind of an offshoot of, of that. But at the time, I really thought I was going to go into either work in a game reserve or ecotourism. But I mean, I think when you're, when you're a kid, you know, that's, those, those are the things you think about, oh, I'm going to become a veterinarian or, or whatever. And I think that was, you know, a romanticized view of that. Certainly, I, I never thought I'd end up in the US, maybe to study, but there was no chance I, I would live here. I mean, I always saw myself somewhere in the middle of Africa doing amazing things in the middle of nowhere. What is the next step for you that brings you on this journey? So I ended up graduating high school. You get what's called an M count. So basically, it's basically your, your GPA. And that allows you to apply for various university programs. And my score was such that I had a free ride at the university, which was kind of nice. The scholarship programs there work a little bit differently. It's, it's very merit-based. Then when you maintain certain grades, they will actually, they, from the university, they'll actually discount your tuition or pay for the tuition as long as you maintain specific grades, which is kind of amazing. And that really offset a lot of the, the financial side for me. Then also, of course, when you work for the university, it, it kind of helps a little bit also. I started studying. I really enjoyed it. I was involved in all sorts of stuff at the university, got myself into uh, all sorts of trouble. Got an opportunity to come to the United States to look at doing uh, a postgrad and also to uh, come on vacation. And that had to be an exciting time. Again, it seems to me that you look forward to the next opportunity rather than be apprehensive about it. Mm -hmm. So you embrace this trip to the United States? Oh, absolutely. So I traveled in Africa, but I'd never been to either Europe or the U.S. That was an incredible adventure for me. I was 21 years old. The world was my oyster, so to speak. It was just incredible to travel to the U.S. I mean, it, it's hard to explain to somebody that grew up here 
culturally, that's what you're exposed to. It's the imagery you see on television. It's it's this really larger than life creation. And so you finally get here and, you know, it sounds really silly, but it was the first time I had Dunkin' Donuts. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And Dr. Pepper and, you know, a Boston cream pie donut. It was like, oh, this is amazing. And so I was really like a kid in a candy store and it was a cultural overload so to speak. I had a family member that worked at Seton Hall University and it was a great school. I did go to New York and Boston and looked at a couple of schools over there too. But Seton Hall, I think just kind of made sense because, you know, I could stay in South Orange, literally walk to campus. And and that was kind of the plan. And I'd even gone with Father Kevin Hanbury at the time, who was the Dean of Admissions. We went to Broadway and uh, he was like, hey, what do you want to watch? And (laughs) can't believe I'm saying this, but we ended up watching Monty Python's Spamalot which the opening scene are, you know, monks kind of walking across. And I was like, oh, man, this is great. And, and he, was, he was laughing. And I was like, okay, this is so great. Because I was like, at first, I'm like, oh, what have I done? It was pretty cool. And uh, then I came to Calif- uh, the California on, on a vacation part. And this was right over uh, New Year's Eve. Went with a couple of guys to uh, a place called Sharky's in Huntington Beach. I met this girl. When you're foreign, you smoke. And so, I mean, it was just culturally accepted. And so, you know, I was still a smoker. So I went outside. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have a smoke break. She was like, oh, I'll come with you uh, just to talk. We started talking. We started talking about travel. And I was like, now I'm the big globetrotter. You know, I'm all the way here in the U.S. I've got some stories for you. (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking. And finally, I asked her, I'm like, hey, if there's anywhere you'd want to go, what's your top destination? And so she's like, oh, I'd want to go to the United Arab Emirates, uh, Dubai. And, you know, at the time, it was kind of more an emerging destination. And so she's telling me all about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Dubai. My, my mom lives there. Uh, so my mom, at, at this point, had gone to the Middle East. She worked in uh, oil and gas and then also for a couple of, like, larger project management companies and stuff. But, you know, at that point, she, she must have been very impressed. <laughs> What ended up happening was I did the, the tourist thing. We went to the La Brea Tar Pits and the Griffith Park Observatory, as you do when you're out here, and obviously went to go see the Hollywood sign and Universal Studios. So she, she came with us and kind of like palled around. We were in the Griffith Park Observatory. Adam, who I was staying with on the East Coast, said, hey, you know, you've, you've Christy, has never been on the East Coast. Why don't you take some leave and you can come stay with us because they have to go back to work. But Ruan has to kind of, you know, do his own thing. You guys can travel together. And so she's like, okay, I'm in. So we flew back to the East Coast. And a couple of days later, she flew out also. And so, you know, this is right around New Year's Eve. All of the Christmas lights and stuff are still up. And, and New York at this point is a, a pretty romantic city. Um, you know, it's all snow covered. It's everything you see in the movies. We ended up doing quite a bit. We ended up going to Washington, D.C. Wanted to go to all the all of the museums and, and everything else, which is amazing. Got to do the, the whole thing there. So we spent three days there. And then we went back to New York and held around. Seen straight out of the, a movie, we were ice skating in uh, Rockefeller Plaza. The music changes. And so like it becomes this kind of like romantic scene. And so we're, we're kind of dancing on the ice. And then it starts snowing. <laughs> I think I've seen this movie. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so corny. At this point, nothing has happened. She would tell me later that she was like head over heels. And I am... You know, I was aware that she was older than I am. And I mean, I'm in the U.S. looking at schools. I still have to go back to South Africa and finish up my degree. You know, I'm not looking for a relationship. There's no chance. You know, I also realized she's older than I am. She thought I was her age, which when she found out later on was kind of a whole thing, too, which is kind of funny. Nothing happens. I'm still just like we're just friendly and everything else. And so finally, she had, we're on South Orange Station and her train is coming in to the station and she has to leave. And then finally, like magic happens and we kiss 
And so her train's in station and we keep kissing and then the train leaves the station. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, well, I guess you're staying here for a while longer. And so she ended up staying two more days. And she was like, okay, I guess we're going to have to figure out different time zones. I went back to South Africa and then we did the long distance thing, which at the time was very hard because in-home internet wasn't even a thing in South Africa yet. And this was during the flip phone and Blackberry scroller bowl era and uh, messaging rates were extremely expensive. And then one day I get a message saying, hey, here are two dates I can come to South Africa, which work for you. She ended up coming to South Africa in July, flew halfway across the world. We ended up going on safari. I, I had a, a friend that set up a private game reserve for us. So it was just the two of us and we got to stay there for a week and we had a game viewing vehicle and I would take her around and everything else. And at this point I was very comfortable in nature. I mean, I'd spent a lot of time outdoors and worked with various organizations and stuff. So like they trusted me with doing stuff like that. And she was blown away at the time she worked in veterinary medicine. So she thought this was the greatest thing ever. Then after a week in South Africa, uh, we went back to Campton and she met my dad who was still staying in South Africa at the time and we had dinner. And I'll never forget, we were walking out of the restaurant and my dad walks up to me and he puts his arm around me and we're, you know, just kind of walking through the parking lot and he, he looks at me and he's like, when are you leaving? He knew basically at that point that it was all over and I think he was right. She spent a couple of days in Johannesburg. I got to show her the university and, you know, we went into Soweto Township, you know, where Nelson Mandela lived, a couple of other notables and went to some cool restaurants and then she went back to the US. I flew back on September 1st, 2007. She had an apartment in Huntington Beach and we quickly realized that there was no chance that I this was going to work out. We ended up moving back to Corona and I met her parents the day after I moved into their house. <laughs> which was awkward to say the least. They were absolutely amazing and you know they understood the whole deal. At the time I was here, obviously I, I had applied for a student visa because that was the plan, I was gonna come and study. We ended up getting married that December. Turns out that I had committed visa fraud because I was supposed to have left again, gone back to South Africa and applied for a K-1 fiance visa. But when you're 22 years old and in love, the first thing you do is you look up the fine print and legalities. And so that turned into a little bit of an issue. So for about 18 months, I wasn't legally allowed to work in the US and thousands of dollars in, in legal fees. And it's a very costly and challenging experience when you're applying for citizenship. So you have to do background checks, medical checks. I mean, there's all of these things that could make you inadmissible. And then in South Africa, of course, like one of the things they, they check you for is TB like tuberculosis. And so what's interesting is, you know, they do the little scratch test and they, they see if your body responds to it. And of course it does, because I'm from Africa. So of course I've been exposed, but it doesn't mean you, you've had it. So of course that was one of the first scares because, you know, they draw the little circle on your arm. And of course mine was like very reactive. And then you have to go for x-rays. Then you have to have a medical practitioner sign off on the fact that, you know, you don't show any scarring on, you know, in the lung tissue and, and that sort of thing. And I think I've been poked and prodded by all of the large government agencies, uh, which is nice. So if I ever have to run background checks, they come back really quickly because I've been very thoroughly vetted. That passed and it took about three or four years until I finally became a permanent resident uh, just because of, you know, all of the hoops and, you know, the, the fact that I had entered under quote unquote false pretext. Yeah, here I am. It says a lot about the strength of the relationship too, to have to go through these trying times. In retrospect, you say, okay, it was all worth it and this is wonderful. But at the time you're going through it, not that you would question whether you're doing the right thing, but I would think it strengthens your bond. 
Absolutely. When you're going through all of this, because you're really working as a team to build a life. Yes. And, you know, she really carried me in the beginning. I mean, and, and it was tough for me because, you know, I'd, I'd always been very conscious of being able to contribute and to carry my own weight and to not be able to work and contribute at all was was really hard for 18 months. And I think that really kind of set the tone for our relationship. It's it's very egalitarian, you know, that's very much a partnership. And, you know, the other thing is, you know, we were, we were kids, she was 25, I was 22. A lot of people thought, well, this is crazy. You've known each other for three months, you're getting married. And, you know, to my line, I think it was like, well, I wouldn't have come halfway around the world, you know, if I didn't think this was going to work. Mind you, like everything else went out the window. It's not like I went back to the East Coast to study, <laughs> which maybe one day I'll be lucky enough to do again. But yeah, I mean, everybody thought this was a harebrained scheme and it worked out in retrospect. But you said early on, you're an old soul. So it isn't, although you were kids, it sounds like there's a level of maturity with both of you, even at this particular point in time, that there was no question. You weren't questioning at all. Other people may, but you weren't questioning your future together in the least. Not at all. In fact, when I went to her dad to you know, say, hey, you know, I'd like to propose to your daughter, he looked at me and said, what took you so long? <laughs> and mind you, this is like three months in. <laughs> and your father knew it right away also yeah. when he was telling you, when are you leaving? Absolutely. So it was obvious to everybody, and the two of you needed to catch up. 100%. How does your career go after this? Well, so I needed to find a job. 2008, you know, we were in a little bit of an economic recession, trying to find employment. At the time, there was a very strong push for American kind of protectionism, America first. And there were a lot of job postings that actually said only citizens need apply, which I wasn't at the time. For better or worse, you have this guy applying that's from Africa. You know, people have their own preconceived notions about what this may or may not mean for the person that's applying for various positions. So it was really hard to enter the job market. And so I ended up working in, in restaurants because there's a low threshold for entry. You know, it was just an easy thing to get back into. And, you know, part of the the tourism program that I was in also had a culinary component. So at least I had a base level understanding of culinary operations. And I'd also worked for a, a time at a really high-end restaurant in Johannesburg, which was where, um, you know, the SABC was located. So we would get everybody coming in for documentary films and, and that sort of thing. And so I was comfortable enough going into to that saying, hey, let's find a position. And so I did. A friend of mine actually uh, was interviewing for a position at Classic Club. He was like, you know what? I'm not the guy for the job, but I think I know who is. And he gave them my information and, and they called me. I went over for an interview. It was really weird because uh, I interviewed with uh, the sales and catering manager at the time. And then the food and beverage manager, he had just been on paternity leave, actually brought his son in for the first time was walking through the building. And so he came over and we, we started talking and we talked for quite some time. Then they were like, hey, you need to meet our executive chef. I'm like, okay. So I went back to the kitchen and went back. And at, at the time, his name was Greg Manette, who could come over from Pebble. You know, I was back there. I was talking with him for a while. I'm just like, okay, this is weird. Because, uh, you know, I, I don't even remember what the original position was that I was interviewing for. But I ended up leaving. The, I climbed in my very cool 1989 Ford Probe of which the driver's side door didn't open. And I got to about Bob Hope, my phone rang. It was like, hey, you know, it's, you know it was Mike Leonis at the Classic Club. Uh, the general manager would like to meet you. So I'm like, okay. So, you know, I turn around and I, I come back. I walk back and I, I meet Greg Rubino, the, the GM. 
you know, we're sitting in his office and talking. He's like, would you like a property tour? I'm like, absolutely. So climbing a golf cart and we, we go for a ride and I'm just blown away. I mean, I, I golfed in South Africa and, and this was maybe one of the most beautiful golf courses I'd ever been on. It was just absolutely pristine. This is February too. So peak season, everything's lush and perfect. He was like, do you want to go have lunch? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? And so we, we climbed in his car and we ended up going for lunch. I think it was burgers and beer is really funny of course yeah we had lunch and we we kept on talking and then um i got back to his office and you know mike came back to the office and they were like look we had one role in mind but we think we need to get a restaurant manager for the direction that the property is going and where we see the future of the operation would you be interested i was like yes absolutely and so kind of took the job just on faith I worked there for about a year when Mike left and I was promoted to, they created uh, the food and beverage manager. Well, he was the food and beverage manager. I became the food and beverage manager. And then at the same time, I had joined the Court of Moss Sommeliers and I'd become a certified SOM. And so they actually created the food and beverage director position, which I then transitioned into, um, which was pretty great. And I, the company that manages the Classic Club is called Troon Golf. Troon at the time only had about 200 properties internationally, but the infrastructure there meant that there was a lot of resources. And, you know, I got to be quite involved there with the National Food and Beverage Director, Carlos Acosta, who had come from the Disney side and really got to learn a lot from that part of the organization. Was involved with helping them with some of the, the training items and stuff that they had uh, developed at the time. And it was just a very, very cool opportunity. What a great education with some very qualified people to be able to mentor you. Mm -hmm. What about this love of or this involvement in the wine area? Because uh, that seems to be another one of your passions. Uh, how did that develop and where did it take you just on that side of it? So I was always peripherally aware of wine. Um, you know, South Africa is a, a pretty great wine producing uh, country. And so, you know, I, I drank wine, but it was never really in an appreciative sense. And so I remember having a wine tasting with Greg at the time, and this is uh, when he still ran the wine program. And, uh, you know, we, we had a vendor and we tasted wine and I was like, wow, you know what, there, there might be something to this. This, this stuff's kind of interesting. And I was like, I think there's also a, an opportunity, you know, to be had here. This is a big industry. And, you know, there's, there's really, there was just something there. I, I didn't quite grasp it at the time, but I, I realized that this was one of those other monumentous occasions where I got introduced to something. And then... Once I started researching and reading, I realized that wine combines like all of the things that I love in life, you know, geography, history, and culture. I mean, you can't separate those things. And, and when you start looking at the greatest wines in the world, they all have a sense of place. Once you start diving into them, you can't separate that from the culture that creates it, the food, the environment that it's enjoyed in. And so, you know, I really kind of fell in love with the romance idea of what wine is. I mean, in, in a really neat sense, when you have the greatest wines in the world, you also have a time capsule. When you're drinking these incredible vintages, you're drinking everything that happened, you know, during the period that created that wine. So when you're having back vintages or first growths, you know, from the 1940s, you're like, wow, this area was occupied by Germany at the time. And these people almost secretly had to make this wine. And not just that, they had to hide it in a cellar so that it wasn't raided. I mean, it's, it's an artifact at that point. Also, there's an art component to wine that I also really enjoy, both from the sense of the winemaker's perspective and what he's trying to express, and then also just from the enjoyment part. And then at the finest or highest end level of the spectrum is... The idea that when you have a collectible bottle of wine, 
you also get to be one of the few people to enjoy and consume it. If you're drinking something like a Romani Conti, you know, which the bottles are individually numbered and they're made in very, very small amounts, it's almost like buying a collectible art piece and only you get to have it. And so there's a lot of draw there, you know, especially in at certain levels for people that really want to experience some of the finer things in life to say, I am the only person that gets to have this or the people that I choose to share it with. I think there's an inherent draw there. So there's a, an exclusivity thing there also. And then also just on the other side, there's this incredible academic side of wine. There's really no upper limit in what you can learn. I've continued my wine education and I plan on just seeing how far I can go with it. Right when I started with the Court of Master Sommeliers, there was a documentary movie called Somme. Uh, that was released on Netflix. And so I watched this with my wife. And after we watched it, and, and the entire premise of the movie is, you know, there are more people that have gone to space than have become master sommeliers. It's considered the hardest exam in the world. We watched this movie and right when the movie ends, my wife's like, you want to do this, don't you? <laughs> and I was like, absolutely. And it's kind of the perfect challenge for me because it, it combines everything that I care about in life. There are reasons that I, I haven't progressed as much as I'd like to. You know, obviously work gets in the way. It's incredibly expensive at the level of trying to find to, the wines to taste. It's easy enough to find current vintages, but trying to find something from the 1970s or 1980s, because in a blind tasting, you're expected to be able to identify the age and the region. And so the only way to really experience that is to taste the wine. And to a lot of people, when I went into the wine distribution side, which I'm sure we'll talk about too, they're like, what an incredible thing. You get to taste a hundred wines a day and you do, but it's funny when you do something for fun versus when you have to do something because it's work, it really changes the entire dynamic. You know, it's of like, course, yeah, yeah, it's like reading for fun or having to study. They're two completely separate experiences. Is it an innate gift that one has to have a discerning palate? Is it something that's just learned through testing and trying? Tell me about that aspect of it, because to the layperson, it just seems like, how do you do this? How can you name the year and the vintage and everything that you have to do to, to be able to qualify for the position you're in now? I think there's a couple of elements to this. One, there are certainly people that are better suited to it than others, not in a talent sort of sense, but because of your background. If you've gotten to experience a broad sense of tastes and smells, then I think you, you're going to have a, a broader base to start on because the way we talk about wine, you compare it with other tastes and flavors and aromas. And the reason for that is we're very visual people. Like if I showed you one color like pink, you'd probably come up with 10 or 15 different names for what that could be. Whereas if I told you to describe an apple, I mean, you know what an apple tastes like, but we don't have the language to say what an apple is because people say, oh, it's sweet and it's tart. I'm like, oh, so like an orange, which is also sweet and tart. The first thing they teach you is we need to come up with a uniform language or baseline to describe specific things. And then on a scientific and chemical level, there are phenolics and compounds that always taste very consistent and will showcase specific aromas and, and flavors within a wine that are only found in either specific varietals or in specific regions. That's the deductive method they teach you, first of all, is to be able to not only identify it, but to be able to describe it so that we're always talking about the same thing. So like an example of that would be pyrazines. Methoxypyrazines are the flavor compounds that give jalapeno or bell peppers that kind of 
peppery taste. That's a methoxypyrazine, which is also found in Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet Franc, and Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, some other grapes also, but I mean, those are like the key markers and in, in various areas. So if you take Sauvignon Blanc, for example, if it's Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, it'll have characteristically because of its exposure to the very high luminosity in the Southern Hemisphere and how much sunshine there is, the UV radiation actually makes that methoxypyrazine taste more like asparagus, canned beans. It's a very aggressive, very pronounced aromatic. Whereas in Sancerre, that'll taste more like a grilled jalapeno. It'll be maybe a little bit more cilantro. And in the United States, it's going to be more like freshly cut grass or like a ruby red grapefruit component. So the area it's grown both from a geological point of view and then also from a climatological perspective will have an impact on how those chemical compounds actually translate into the final product. It's just like anything else, you basically learn to identify all of those. And then wines are grouped into these main buckets, whether they're aromatic varietals or non-aromatic varietals. And then it's broken down from there. So when you're tasting a wine deductively, you're asking yourself, which of these things am I tasting and smelling? And then to what extent and how are they being showcased? And then you go a step further and you look at alcohol level, because that tells you the potential alcohol is based on ripeness. So the riper a grape is, the more potential alcohol you have. You know, and this is where it gets really hard for two things. One is stylistically, a winemaker can dictate whether they stop fermentation short and they don't convert all of the sugar to alcohol, meaning that they leave some residual sugar. And you factor all of these things in, the level of acidity, the cooler climates tend to have higher acidity, warmer climates don't. Also with the growing environment now and the record number of warm years we've had, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, a lot of wines start to taste the same. So it's harder and harder now to look at regions. And then the other thing is also the commercial success of what are called international varietals are taking over traditional varietals in certain areas. There's a lot more blending happening and a lot of producers of more traditional wines are making wines in a more international style because ultimately they have to sell their wines. And so in a blind tasting setting, it's, it's much harder to identify, you know, something that 10 years ago would be like, oh, well, this is definitely what that is. And now it's like, whoa, this is, it's kind of muddied the waters a little bit. So it's becoming more challenging. And then the wine world is just, it's, it's blown up. There's, there's so much more demand. There's so much more involvement because of people like me. And then also just incredible consumers like you have here, people that either want to collect wine or just enjoy drinking wine. I mean, I could probably just rattle on and on. Does technology bring wines closer together so that there isn't that super wine that it's a more not i hate to use homogenized because that's not fair how does technology play into this that's huge for various reasons the new world and old world can be broadly divided in europe and the old world winemaking is still dictated by and large by tradition. And there's a move back towards making wines more traditionally and without human involvement. And that's something that I'm actually very passionate about because the greatest wines, I think, as I said, have a sense of place. I think that they, they should always hail back to where they're from, also because that's tied in with both the culture and the cuisine. And it also gives you more options. In the new world, it's a little bit more the winemaker's preference dictating what wine they want to put out, whether that's for to meet market demand or whether that's just because it's an artistic expression. That also is changing. But from a technology point of view, it's become easier and easier to make high quality wine. It's easier to 
be hygienic in the winery. It's easier to control fermentations with cooling tanks, the way things are fined and filtered. You're left with a much cleaner product. On the flip side of that, unfortunately, is that there's also a very commercialized movement in wine where wines are produced in bulk. For the wines that I like, I mean, they're, they're wines with a story and a producer or family at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. Whereas, you know, you have these commercially kind of industrially made wines and they're made from wines that come from all sorts of different sources. They, they go through a centrifuge, the impurities are spun out of them. You know, you have to ask yourself, what am I drinking when you're buying something that you can get at a Costco? And some of the bigger brands that a lot of people enjoy are, are made in that style. And the unfortunate thing is, especially in the US, is there's no transparency with regards to additives and what wine is made with. So, you know, less scrupulous producers that are out to make a little bit of money are capitalizing. They're adding sugar. They're adding tannin powder. They're adding mega purple uh, because the, the grapes are basically just an industrial input. And there is no artistry in how the, the wines are made. That's, I think, where somebody like me comes in and I, I want to tell the story about a wine. I want to be able to say, you know, this is where this comes from. This is how this is made. And there's a movement, I think, in the industry, too. There are producers like Ridge, um, which is, you know, the, the Stark producer. And on the back, they've actually started listing ingredients. And I think that's kind of a challenge to the rest of the industry to say, we dare you to follow suit because there's a lot of big names out there that aren't able to transparently say this is what's in our wine. This passion that is now developed and this expertise, which we're very lucky to have here, tell me you're at the Classic Club now, and as far as the career goes, where does it go from the Classic Club? Yeah, so we had a, a phenomenal period of growth and expansion there. As I got more involved in wine, I think I started getting on the radar of a couple of distributors. There was one company that was actually trying to get me to come over to their side. And I'll, I'll just name it, a gentleman called Kevin Sharkey. He was very instrumental in my career and just an incredibly well-educated wine professional. He actually alerted me, even though that was his company I was supposed to go to, um, said, you know, there's a company uh, called the Estates Group, which is maybe the finest wine distributorship um, in the, the West Coast. Uh, said, look, there's a position that just became available. And honestly, you should apply for that because it's an incredible opportunity. And so I did. For the most part, positions there, you have to have been in the industry. I mean, it was kind of a long shot opportunity for me to even apply. I sent an email to Mindy Hewitson, who was the division manager at the time, and just said, hey, you know, we, we've met at several events. We've, we've done some wine dinners and, and stuff together, and I'd like to apply for this position. I know it goes through corporate, but, you know, here's my resume attached. And she called me pretty immediately and said, I'm in the area. Do you want to come down and have a conversation? with me and the import specialist, we're going to be, I can't remember, it was one of the, the hotels that they were staying at. And so we just ended up meeting in the lobby. You know, a couple of weeks later, I got to go down to uh, their headquarters in LA and uh, met with the gentleman that started the, uh, the division called um, Gino Margarino. And he had created the estates group as kind of a division within the company, which is just basically made up of wine experts. They take it very seriously about who they have. And, and so it's about 30 or 40 salespeople inside a company that's got a couple of thousand individuals. But all you do is wine, which is, is kind of amazing. And it's it's more, you act more like a consultant than a salesperson, which was something that appealed to me because I don't think I've ever been, I, I enjoy sell, selling, but I was never really like a salesperson. You know, the opportunity there was, you know, join kind of the finest team 
in the US. And, and that was all, always Gino's goal was we want to be the best fine wine distributorship. And, you know, their portfolio certainly kind of lent truth to that statement. It, the book was incredible. They had wines like Domaine Le Fleuve, Domaine de la Romani Conti for the French producers, which are $20,000 a bottle if you want to buy a bottle of DRC, DRC. The Italian portfolio was incredibly strong. In fact, it's probably still the best Italian portfolio of all the major distributorships. You know, I met with him and we had one of the weirdest interviews ever. We had some of the introductory conversations and then he asked me kind of what I thought was the first industry kind of hardball question. And I answered that and I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, wow, this I, I think I knocked that out of the park. And then he stood up and he said, do you know your way out? I'm like, excuse me? He's like, yeah, do you know how to get out of the building? I'm like, oh, oh, yes. I walked out and then drove home from LA and bumper to bumper traffic, beating myself up, trying to figure out what just happened there. Like, what did I do? This is, this is so weird. And then I didn't hear back from them for a significant point of time. And then I get a, a call from their HR department speaking. She's like, how did the interview go with Gina? I'm like, well, you know, I, I don't think that well. She's like, oh, why not? I was like, well, it was just super strange. It was like seven minutes long. And then I answered the question and then he asked if I knew how to get out of the building. She's like, oh yeah, that is kind of weird. And she's like, well, we want to do the onboarding. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, you have the job. Did nobody tell you that? <laughs> I was like, why didn't you start with that? <laughs> so it was just a, a weird transition and gave my notice at the Classic Club and joined the, uh, the Estates Group team. I think I was there for about nine months when my boss got promoted. Then we got to interview for that position. She really was like, hey, you should interview for my position, which was incredible of her, which was, that was kind of amazing. So I did interview for the position. I, once again, I thought I was a little bit of a long shot candidate and I got selected to be the new division manager. And so I ended up overseeing the region from basically Pasadena to the Arizona and Nevada border. And so I had four account managers that reported to me and then also worked with all of the other division managers on what's called the broad market side. You know, and that really... I think was from a career perspective, one of the greatest opportunities I've ever had. Because not only was I exposed to incredible wines and at a, at a very high level, I got to sit in on a lot of meetings where we got to determine who we would represent and with suppliers courting us and winemakers and producers coming and seeing us in very regular meetings. And we got to taste things that were at the, you know, setting trends in the marketplace. Like we were tasting canned wines and ready to drink cocktails and stuff before, you know, they would make it out to the, the industry. And I mean, we were making decisions on like, is this something that we want to represent and how do we do that? And then also just the amount of time I could spend with industry professionals, winemakers, and the access I had. I mean, I, I would travel a lot to wine regions, both from, uh, you know, enrichment and education perspective, which we would do trips, but then also in incentives where, you know, when you met specific targets or goals or exceeded expectations, suppliers, you know, would fly us up to, to wine regions. And I, I got to spend quite a bit of time with, you know, some really incredible people like Michael Mandavi and Charles Smith. And to walk the cellars and the vineyards with some of the icons in the industry, the education you get from that is really something you can't get from a book. The four and a half years I got to do that, I think is like basically like a 10-year formal education for me. And then on the other side, I got to the accounts that I called on, you really only look at the best of the best because the people that were buying my products are only, you know, high-end country clubs, luxury resorts, hotels, and super high-end restaurants. 
because they have the consumer that can afford the wines that I represented. I got to consult with a lot of chefs, work on a lot of dinners, worked on a lot of menus, helped build out lists, new restaurants, or when hotel groups would change direction with their program, the casinos, whether it was the high roller room or the reserve lists or doing parties for New Year's Eve. Just getting access and also coming from the club side at that point, being able to be in so many other clubs, I got to see the backside of the operation of basically all the clubs in the valley and, of course, Riverside, a fair amount in Orange County and so on when I would help with other events. You get to learn a lot about how the back of the house operation is at, at a lot of other places. That was an incredible experience for me. And also, from a curiosity perspective, it was just incredible to see how many different ways there are to do things and how ultimately the business is the same, right? And on the country club side, but how people choose to cater to their membership, what the product is and the experience is that they're trying to offer to their membership, and then also how they make that happen. It was really cool to be able to see that and then also to take that information and then bring it here because it's sort of a compare and contrast sort of situation because I mean obviously I know all of the management team because I had to call on them and the buyers and you know what the wine programs look like and so in that perspective I can also kind of build a program here that is unique because I know what's elsewhere in the valley and what's available and also probably at what price point and margin and you know so it was just an incredible opportunity with the way that the program here has expanded and developed and I think with the incredible opportunity that this property affords its membership, I think that there is still a lot of room to grow. And I think that the membership is growing. And I think also experientially, um, you know, I think the club is moving in a direction where they're trying to offer so much more to their membership. And I think that was what the decision making was behind bringing me on. And I was basically brought on to act as another layer of support for Juan and the food and beverage operation. And the big line of thinking there was, you know, I can add another layer for the beverage program specifically. And I think that I'm just so excited to see what else is coming. Where we're at right now is in an incredible spot. And we have the best beverage program, I think, of any club in the Valley. But I, there's also untapped potential. And there is an ability to refine that further in creating more identity at the different outlets. For example, creating separation between the Canyon Steakhouse and the Poor House, really curating lists that create an identity for each of those uh, from a wine perspective, but also from a spirits perspective. And then also, I think, elevating the events portion, both just the general events that we do. We've, we've started really curating what the beverage offering is for every single event we're doing. And then also creating specialty cocktails and a cocktail program on the Poor House side. I mean, it's sort of limitless. Well, and again, I think that that's part of the vision that any club has to have about what does this look like in the future and never being satisfied with where you stand. And especially in the area of service and product, again, vision that we're constantly growing. And for that reason, all of this expertise that you bring, I mean, Juan's done a wonderful job as as you would agree in starting this whole program and doing all the things that have become wildly successful. And then with your addition, now we can just continue to grow that. Tell me, what was your first feelings about Bighorn when you saw it? Well, you were familiar with the classic club being. Yeah, I'd been here before doing uh, some events too on the wine side. 
two things really stand out to me and were also the impetus behind me joining the team here is you have the best possible team of individuals and a collective group of people here, both from the membership point of view and from the management team that are second to none. And so I think that is an incredible allure to be part of the best. I mean, you always want to grow and progress with the best team. And I think that certainly is what you have here. And then also the constant push for innovation. I think that was one of the things that really appealed to me is the fact that there is such an incredible focus and vision here, but that it's not stagnant. It's not like, oh, we've achieved this now and we're happy to stay where we're at. This is a very competitive industry. That I think is what makes Bighorn so unique and which will continue to make Bighorn you know, the place to be is the fact that there is a drive to continue to improve and to innovate. And that's something that I want to be a part of. I think that is so woven into the core um, of the club that I think that is my first takeaway. And then the other thing that people maybe take for granted is the level of attention to detail in everything that happens here. You know, no decision is made in a vacuum. It's done collaboratively. There are so many discussions and conversations that happen at every level for everything that we do whether it's planning an event, whether it's a menu rollout or a menu release. I mean, there is really a attention to detail and thought given into what the ramifications and implications are for everything that is done here. And then the other side of it is, is it's, it's a very long-term approach. And so it's not innovating and changing for the sake of change. It's what is this going to translate to three years and five years from now? What does this do for our membership? What is the value that it's adding? But then also, how does this position us for additional success? And then what do we build on uh, from there? So it's not just, I think it's it's very carefully curated and, and kind of put together. Well, I think too, it's been my strong feeling always that we don't have, our competition is not other clubs. Our competition is ourselves. We want to continue to be the best there is regardless of what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that you bring that attitude and that that expertise to this. With all you've accomplished, what are your feelings about the future for you? First of all, I'm, I'm very optimistic and, getting, and excited. Being here affords me the opportunity to keep investing in myself because the more I do from an academic perspective and the more I learn, the more I'm also adding to the operation here. And I think that there's an understanding and an appreciation for that. A lot of other organizations might be scared to watch their associates continue to develop and grow because they're fearful of them leaving. Uh, Whereas here, I think that there is enough of an understanding of the more value I bring to the operation, the more I'm actually adding to the operation. I'm currently starting on my D1, which is the diploma level for WSET. Concurrently, I'll try to do my level three with the court which will translate to eventually being able to do the MW. So the MW is the master of wine. Um, There's less than 300 people currently that have an MW in the world. Um, I think 540 people have achieved the MW designation since the 1950s when it was offered. And it has, the program has an acceptance rate of 3%. And so to enter the program, you basically have to prove that you will bring something unique to the wine industry. So whether that's a unique perspective or background or whether you're trying to innovate in a specific area or realm. Um, You know, there is one MW from South Africa. So unfortunately, I won't be the first South African MW. 
But nonetheless, I mean, that, that for me right now is the current goal, is to work towards becoming an MW. Tell me, who are the people that have had the greatest influence on your life? Well, um, my wife, I think for obvious reasons, uh, she tells people that I was a uh, mail order and that she imported me. But I mean, it sounds silly, but I mean, I literally wouldn't be here without her. I mean, I'd, I'd be somewhere in, in Africa doing who knows what. And, and you know, I, sometimes I have to pinch myself because I'll, you know, be driving down. I'm like, I can't believe I'm in the U.S. Like, I, there was no way I would have thought, you know, this would ever happen. A gentleman court called Mark Sullivan who uh, used to be a wine representative and just an incredible human being. He um, was diagnosed with cancer right as we were sort of developing a friendship. And it turned out it was it was pretty significant. And uh, he went for surgery. And uh, even during radiation, he would stop by. This was when I was doing my certified exam. And he would come and bring me samples of stuff that... I needed to taste and that he knew was important for my development, even when you could tell I wasn't going well with him. I remember this was right when I was taking the job with the estates group and he had worked for the estates group. There was a day that he arrived and he was pulling an oxygen tank with him. It was at, at that point and his wife actually had to drive him to the club. And it was just because he wanted to you know, make sure I didn't have any questions. Or there was nothing that he could help me with during the, the transition. So just an, an incredible human being, uh, just very selfless. Um, I think that that really stuck with me and I think has kind of fostered in me one of the core values professionally, which is, you know, to invest in other people. Like if you help other people to develop professionally, you know, that's one of the greatest things you could do as a manager, as a leader, and as a, as a professional. Kevin Sharkey, which I think I mentioned, and then also uh, Greg at the Classic Club for, you know, giving me a start in this industry. I don't know whether I would have thought to go into the club world. It's a pretty mysterious little niche market unless you're in it. And then you realize this is a major, major industry, but it's not unless you're coming through the traditional channels of, you know, the, maybe the golf side or the racket sports, you know, you don't necessarily think, oh, there's this major industry. I mean, and, and the Valley and maybe portions of Arizona and Florida, I think, are maybe unique because there's such high concentrations, but elsewhere... You know, I don't think the, the country club industry necessarily is noted for just quite what it is. And that continues to grow throughout Absolutely. the country and the world. Mm -hmm. Rue, also part of your job description and your growth is not just the knowledge base that you have, but also the ability to manage people, because that's a big part of your growth in this industry. What do you look for in people that work with you? What qualities? Enthusiasm. I think, um, you know, that goes a long way. Personality, the ability to interact with people, an instinct to take care of people, um, and genuinely have a level of hospitality to begin with. I think if you are working with somebody that genuinely wants to take care of you, that's always going to go a long way. I always said that you hire for personalities. And as a manager, it's your job to give your associates the tools and the training in order to perform the actual job. You can't teach somebody to have a great personality. You can't teach somebody to have a service mindset. So if you have that innate ability to take care of people and you can kind of foster that and encourage people to just shine, my job is to stay out of their way. You know, when we have incredible people my job really is to make sure that they're taken care of and they're happy and that they have what tools they have to do their job and that their needs are met. And I think that here specifically, 
There is such an incredible culture of hospitality. The care that our associates have for the members on a personal level, there's nothing to add there. It's really just keep encouraging and, and stay out of people's way and then make sure that they have the tools to be able to keep caring for the membership. That's in line with what we always talk about. There's a lot of wonderful developments here in a lot of great places within the valley and the country. But this is truly a community. Mm -hmm. And there really is a sense of family where there's no or very little delineation between the people that work here or the people that live here. I think that's a very special culture that we want to continue to maintain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's one of the uh, the biggest surprises to me when I started uh, working here was, you know, just how welcoming the membership was and how genuinely interested they were in me as a person and then also invested they are in the success of everybody that works here. I think that there's an understanding here that there is something special here, both from the workplace culture, but then also from the membership perspective, and that you can't really separate those two things. And I think that that was just one of the things that I think created Bighorn the way it is. It's a little bit of an intangible. I think if you could bottle that, you could make quite a bit of money if you could you know, find a way to replicate that. But I don't think that that's really possible because you have such a unique membership. You've touched on it a little bit. What is your management style? How would you define leadership? I mean, that's really a, something that you grapple with because you realize that the decisions that you make have financial implications and ramifications in people's lives and that you affect people's livelihoods. And that's not something that you take lightly. Um, and I think that you know, I don't know whether I have clearly defined that yet. I'm still trying to learn as much as anybody. Certainly, I think you know great leadership when you see it, and I think that we all strive towards that. But for the most part, for me, it's being introspective and to question what I do, and then also to be human and to have a human connection. Ultimately, we're all here to work and to accomplish a, a same goal. We're all here to provide the best possible experience for the membership. You never want this to feel like a job. I kind of made myself a promise a long time ago is that if I go to work and I'm, I, I ask myself while I'm driving, I'm like, what am I doing? I guess time to reassess at that point. But it's also, you know, creating safety for our associates to come to us with their concerns, to realize that ultimately we're all people. There are things that happen outside of work that might take precedence. It doesn't mean that it gives you a free pass or you have an excuse. But at the same time, like we realize that ultimately this club will be here and can be here without one or two of us. It's better off because you're here. If you have something else that you need to take care of, it's our job to figure out how to make that happen, whether that's going to a wedding or because you have kids. Like we want people to have a great and fulfilling life outside of work, you know, and it's my job as a leader to facilitate that. And if I do, then it makes you that much better and more capable of performing at the highest possible level here. Well said. Last question. I ask everyone, and again, you're a very young man, but I think the question still applies. What would you tell the 20-year-old you today? Wow. That's a pretty tough one, actually, because, you know, what I've been thinking about a lot as I'm heading towards 40 and, you know, we're, I'm, we're not going to have kids is what is my legacy going to be and what do I want to leave behind? And I think that flipping the script and, and talking to my 20-year-old self it would be don't pass up opportunities and live for every single moment. You know, I think we're so scared sometimes of embracing challenge or 
putting ourselves in situations that could be awkward, that we forget that those moments are fleeting and that you don't take risks. Uh, the greatest stories I have to tell are the times where things weren't perfect or where things didn't go well. You know, and I think that's where the life happens. It's not when, you know, you did everything according to plan and, you know, there was no sense of adventure. So I think, if anything, I would have said, take more risks. Be open to opportunity. Thank you so much for coming in today. And to our membership and the community at large, take the opportunity to not only with Rue's experience and his knowledge, but also his personality and life experiences, even at a young age, engage him. He is a very engaging guy. And thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much, Marty. Thank you, Rue, for such a great story. Very inspiring. And you really gave us a personal look into your life. We are lucky to have you here at Bighorn. And thanks to Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Back Nine Greens, and Corliss Estate Wine for their continued support that allows us to bring you these broadcasts. We look forward to bringing you another Bighorn podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories very soon.